So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, Sharon Brobst is going to come and read the scripture for us. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And he said not, and has he said not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates any they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of, for, afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So, fun fact, I actually get nervous when I am asked to speak or read the Bible in public. I know I don't really ever get nervous when I preach, but I get nervous when I'm asked to facilitate the service or read the Bible. What, what is that? Does anybody want to psychoanalyze me right now? Yes, I bet Carolyn would love to. I don't know. It's hard, though, actually. So thank you for everybody that does that. Thank you, Sharon. And I know um, that we want to get more people to have the privilege and the honor of coming up and reading the Word of God. So if you get asked to do that, you might want to consider it now um, because we're probably going to be putting our finger on your shoulder and asking you to do that. So what do you do when you become a Christian? What do you do for someone else when they become a Christian? I mean, something amazing just happened in a person's life, right? Their life was given to Jesus. They submitted, as you heard in the video. And Jesus gave them life. He gave them eternity, gave them a family, gave them a relationship with God through him, gave them blessings. So what do you do now? What do you do when you're a new believer? Well, last week we saw just how amazing God's grace really is in the salvation of Saul. You remember Saul will become Paul, who will write a lot of the New Testament. So last week we saw his salvation, and we learned that every Christian is saved by God's grace, and every Christian has a story to tell, and we like to help people learn to share that story in three parts, and you saw that last week. Here's the three parts. Who was I before God's grace saved me? How did God save me? And what did God save me for? Now, you can share that. That's not necessary or requiring you to know a lot of theology. You don't need to learn apologetics, how to defend the faith. You're simply telling your story, and it has so much power. 
This is why we're asking you to participate. Come to us and let us know that you'd like to tell your story of what God has done for you. It's amazingly powerful. And I'm sure even watching people's heads nodding while Julia was sharing what God has done for her, you know, you can link into these stories. You can connect to them. But salvation is just the beginning. It's the entrance onto that road of life. Isaiah calls it the highway, the journey with Jesus. What will enable a believer who is just brand new to grow? Well, that's really the answer. That's the question, rather, that we're going to try to answer. We're going to see it in Saul's life. And I'm going to show you from the passage that Sharon just read four really powerful factors that are going to enable Saul to grow in Christ. And here's the first one. The importance of fellowship. Now look at your Bibles. you got to look at your Bible. Now listen, if you're at home and you're listening to this message, I cannot look at you like I can my friends here in the sanctuary. I can't tell if you're looking at your Bible. So I'm going to ask you to do two things right now if you're watching this online. Number one, get your Bible out. I'll wait. Get your Bible out. And number two, get ready because we're going to be celebrating the Lord's table in a little bit. So you might want to go to your kitchen really quickly, leave your volume on high so you can hear everything, and then come back with the necessary bread and juice or wine and bread or cracker and then your Bible as well. So if you can get ready for that, and we're already here in the sanctuary. We even have gluten-free communion tablets. Isn't that really good? We actually had a girl a while ago that couldn't take communion. We didn't know this. She hasn't been able to take communion the entire COVID. She has severe reactions to gluten. So we finally found gluten-free, and that poor girl is going to have to take that. I am so sorry. I am actually gluten-full. All right, so the importance of fellowship. Let's get in your Bibles, everybody. Look at verse 19. For some days, Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. And I think most of us, most of us have learned that online church, online church, which is what all of us have experienced, and many are now experiencing still, it really just cannot replace in-person worship. It cannot replace in-person fellowship. Is there really anybody that would disagree with that? I'm going to address that to our online audience. Is there anybody online that would truly disagree with that? It just cannot replace being together, worshiping our God. But there is a, there's quickly emerging, I want everybody to hear this, whether you're online or in person, there is quickly emerging really helpful research that people in online-only, online-only church are generally not worshiping at home. Now, I want you to admit it right now to yourself. When you were at home, because there was a time when we, all we did was online, when you were at home, were you really, truly singing these songs? Were you really, truly worshiping with us? The majority, according to research, are not. They're laid back in their recliner. They've got their cup of coffee. 
They've got their pajamas. i got a really, really good friend that said, you know, I'm going to really have a hard time coming back because I really enjoy being in my pajamas, drinking coffee, watching the sermon. But we know this research is really coming out. A lot of articles coming out now with a lot of data. You're really not worshiping online, the majority. And let me just absolutely say, even more of the majority are not being discipled and they're not discipling others. Now, I'll let you online answer that one. Are you discipling people right now, even beyond your family? And are you being discipled by somebody else more mature than you in Christ? For almost everybody, the answer's been no. I've been asking. And what is glaringly missing is the critical element of fellowship. And here is why I say it's critical. There is a very clear message in the New Testament. If you know your Bible, your heart should probably be resonating with this and saying an amen to this. Believers in Jesus are to live this Christian life together. I mean, come on, can you really disagree with that? We are to be living this Christian life together. And the phrase, one another, quote, one another, it occurs 100 times in the New Testament alone. It describes the community life of the early church as Christians lived with one another. So I'm going to make a statement that I want you to write down if you're writing it. You probably could actually memorize this. It's not that long. And here it is. One anothering was the priority of the New Testament church. Now here's what I did not just say. One anothering is important in the New Testament church. I did not say that. I said it's the priority. It was absolutely the priority for the New Testament church. They encouraged one another. They prayed with one another. They loved one another. They bore one another's burdens. They confessed sin to one another. They ate with one another. So listen, if your only exposure to other Christians in life right now is this church service, and I'm addressing everybody that's here in person, if this is your only exposure to other Christians... And once you leave here, you don't see anybody else, you don't disciple anybody, no, nobody's discipling you, you don't have anything else by way of fellowship until next weekend, that's not the New Testament church. And if this online experience, what you're engaging in right now, is it for you until next week's online experience, that is not fellowship. You are not experiencing church. One another means intentionally living or living for or living toward or living with other believers, pandemic or not. A major concern, I'm just going to be really, really honest with you, a major, major, major concern of our leadership right now is that some of you may be getting so comfortable, so cozy, complacent, and if you can bear up under this, some of you getting lazy because you're in online church and what's compelling you to come back? And you're forfeiting the call to be living a life of community in the church. 
That's what we're called to do. See, what Saul experienced immediately after salvation was a group of Christians came around him and he began to live life with. You know what? In the Greek, that word is meta. That means in the midst of. He began to live life in the midst. He wasn't on the fringe. He wasn't on the peripheral. He wasn't on the outside of the church, ducking in periodically, watching in an online service, and that's it. He was in the midst, and they came around him. They helped him grow. But look at what else we see that is part of spiritual growth, number two. The importance of immediately getting on mission. Look at verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He's literally just been saved. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. Now here's a little question for you. I'm going to ask two questions. How long was Saul a Christian before he began telling people about Jesus Christ? Your answer is immediately. Here's the second question. How long should you wait, Christian, before you begin talking to other people about Jesus Christ? And the answer is immediately. And here's the facts. You might not yet be able to understand the Word of God very completely. You might not know deeper truths yet. But you can share what you know, and that's literally what the word witness means. Word witness means to share what you know. Share what's happened to you. Do you know that that's all that God is asking of you? When he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria the other, and to the end of the earth, he's asking you to simply share what you know, what Julia just did on that sermon, what Kim and Dave Bast have done, what my wife has done, what all these video testimonies have done. You share what you know. You see, this is the joy of being in fellowship with one another. One of the one another's is to instruct one another, Romans 15, 14. And when we are taught by others, we apply it immediately. We obey it. We live it out, and our faith grows. Here's the most interesting thing that I think I learned years ago when I preached through the book of James. I learned that faith without works is dead. Now, I knew that, but here's what I didn't understand. I didn't understand the Greek in that. And what that really means is this, that when you obey and you live out your faith, it actually creates a strengthening of your faith. And with a stronger faith comes increased obedience, and increased obedience continues to increase your faith. That's the circle of spiritual growth. You live out what you know, and when we instruct one another, we apply it immediately, and I'm going to tell you, I will promise you, because this is the word of God, I'm on a very good footing to say this, your faith will increase and one of the things that's going to happen to you Christian let's say that you're new or let's say that you've been saved for a while but you've not really gotten very far away from the starting blocks in this race called the Christian life one of the things I want to really encourage you about is this that when you learn what your measure of grace is that's Romans 12 language for your spiritual gift 
when you learn what your spiritual gift is and you begin to, to connect, why did God give you your personality? That's by birth. If you don't like your personality, can I just tell you, you're, you're, you're going to have that personality your whole life. You can add into that personality your talents. You can add into that personality your growth, your experiences. But fundamentally, your personality is part of your imaging of God. It's part of his unique creation of you. And when you learn all of this and you begin to see how God has woven his image in you, he's given you a measure of grace. He's given you the talents that you have. He's given you the experiences that you've gone through, and a lot of them not very good. But they all, they all come around you. And make you into the person that he can use. See, there's a real critical importance of immediately getting on mission. But the third one is this. Now, here's my question I've been trying to answer. How does a new believer grow? Well, we've seen the importance of fellowship. We've seen the importance of getting on mission. Here's the third one. The importance of being prepared. The most of you are not going to ever be asked to preach a sermon. I'm sure some of you are like, whew, I'm really thankful for that. Some of you are like, well, I wish I could. I wish they'd let me. I think I'd do better. That's fine. There's another church. I'll just refer you over there. Listen, most of you are not going to be asked to preach a sermon. God's not going to ask you. In fact, let me just tell you something very interesting, again, that I learned in the James series. There's really not a lot of God-called teachers in any church. There's not. If you're in a church of 100 people and 92 of them think they're called to teach, they don't know their calling. Here's what God says, not many of you should become teachers. That means that there's something in teaching that's really not to be coveted. It's not an enviable thing. Do you want to know why? Because when you're called to teach, you're going to be held to a stricter account. And there is a weight that will come down on your shoulders and a burden that you will be asked to bear that's not really enjoyable. Do I love to teach? Of course I love to teach. But it's a burden. Every week I labor and labor and labor so that I can preach what is true. And I don't always hit 100% on that mark. I try. It is easy for teachers to become lazy. Whether they are leading a study or if they're preaching, they get lazy. Here's how teachers get lazy in the church. They rest on their past learning because it is so arduous to keep studying. It is so difficult and laborious to keep learning. They rest on their past learning. They learn to do a quick pre uh, preparation. They just have natural skills or gifts to help them get up here, and they improv, and they shoot from the hip. That is lazy teaching, and that is a strict accounting that they're, they're going to have in their future. 
But every Christian is called. While everybody, not everybody's called to preach, every Christian is called to be prepared, Peter says, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Saul had a divine call on his life. And it required great preparation and prepared he would be. You know what's not apparent when you read this? I want you to look at verses 21 and verses 22. There's actually a gap of time that you have to read other places in scriptures to find out. There's about a three-year process here by which Saul is about to be prepared. In fact, if you go over to Galatians chapter 1, and you can see it on the screen behind me, here's what Paul says in Galatians. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. It did not, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Now listen to what I've, I'm going to, I think I underlined it. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is verses 21 and 22, the gap. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So there is a three-year preparation that Paul is going to go through that Luke doesn't bring out in Acts, but Paul brings out in other scriptures. See, God's calling Saul into deeper obedience. He's calling him into wider influence. And with that comes the need for preparation. Saul leaves Damascus shortly after being saved. He goes all the way into the Sinai wilderness, which is called Arabia. And then he returned to Damascus having, look at verse 22, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. It was during the second time in Damascus that the Jews plotted to kill him, verse 23, but his disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket, verse 25. It's three years of preparation. Now, I want everybody to look at me, if you would, even those online. If God is going to use you, and I say that actually tongue-in-cheek because God is going to use you, He's going to need to prepare you. No one goes from salvation to fully prepared for ministry, for fully prepared as a school teacher to defend the faith when you've got to be super subtle in how you talk about it, or at your hospital as a nurse, or in your neighborhood with neighbors who can get really quite sensitive when it comes around to talking about religion. There's going to be a preparation process. And some of that preparation is going to be to take you out into a desert, a wilderness, a very dry time. Julia had that. In fact, it was three years. And she came back, and the Lord brought her back, and the Lord prepared her for even what she's being called to do now. But there's going to be a preparation. And during that preparation, there's going to be some difficulty. There's going to be some pain in your life. It's going to chisel some of the sharp edges off of you. You're going to actually probably fail a little bit. And God is going 
going to keep making you and shaping you and transforming you and preparing you for greater works of service that he has ahead of you. Now listen very carefully. I did not just describe what God does for pastors. I described what God does for all of his people. If he's going to use you more greatly, he's going to break you more deeply. That was Arabia for Saul. And that will be for you as it has been for me. And when Paul got there, when Saul got there, look at verse 26. He attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. He couldn't break into fellowship. The church wouldn't accept him. They were afraid of him. What's the fourth then? What's the fourth important factor if a new Christian is going to grow? It's the importance of a mature Christian coming alongside the new Christian. There's been no area in my biblical conviction that has grown more in the past decade than the area of discipleship. And I've concluded that if we are not being personally discipled by a fellow believer and begun personally discipling others, then we are not in step with the one and only mission that God has given the church. I don't know how to say it more clearly. Well, I guess I'll try. If you're not being discipled by a mature Christian and you're not in turn discipling someone not as far along as you in Christ, friend, I just don't know how to tell you this. You're not on mission. There's really only been one mission. There's literally been one mission that Jesus Christ has given the church. It's Matthew 18. We are to go and make disciples. And if you're not being made, if there's nobody investing in you, and you're not investing intentionally in somebody else, then you're not in discipleship. You're not on mission. And you can begin. You can ask for somebody. And you can go to somebody and say, I want to walk with you. I want to pour my life into you. Every single Christian should be helped to grow in Christ. Here's the absolute clear fact. If I were to tell you that tonight we're going to have a meeting and everybody online and everybody in person, we're going to ask you tonight to identify somebody that you're going to disciple and that you're going to start tomorrow morning. Here's what's going to happen Almost all of you, and I'm not exaggerating, almost all of you are going to just, in your utter honesty, say, I don't know how. And the reason that's true is because no one has discipled you. That's, the, that's what's wrong with the modern church. And it's what is absolutely appositional or opposite of what the early church was. The early church was built on discipleship. And that's where we're going as a church at Cornerstone. We're actually changing the culture here, which means the way we do things around here. And the way we're changing the culture is this. If your ministry that you love in this church isn't making disciples, it should not exist. It's just that easy. 
if that ministry that's not making disciples can be changed to become a disciple-making ministry, then let's get going and do it. But if it has no hope of ever making disciples, why are we wasting our time? Because there's only one mission. And that's true for every ministry of the church, and that's true for every believer in a church. And you don't need to wait for the church to get you going on this. This is true for you wherever you are. See, the kingdom of God is about people. And notice what happened when the church would not trust Saul and let him into their community. Look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him. Here comes his discipler. And brought him to the apostles. And declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas sat down with Saul. You've got to infer this, but I'm absolutely confident he did. And he heard his story. He heard his story of who he was before Christ saved him. How God saved him through Jesus and what God saved him for. And he took that by conviction, and later in Acts, you're going to see Barnabas pouring his life into Saul. He's the son of encouragement. And here he brings Saul, he takes him by the hand, so to speak, and he walks him into the community. He says, I'm putting my confidence in him. Let us hear his story, and let us see what God has done in his life. He wouldn't have made it into the community of the church without Barnabas. So who's your Barnabas? And who are you being a Barnabas for somebody else? Can you imagine if we were to be a church full of people who said, I'm going to reach out to you. I'm not waiting for you to reach out to me. I'm going to reach out to you, and I'm going to get to know you, and I'm going to come alongside you, and I'm going to do whatever I can and love to help you grow. Can you imagine what kind of a church this would be? We would never have what I too frequently hear. I tried your church. Nobody really reached out to me. So I went to this church, and they accepted me. I hear that too often. It's not about us putting plastic smiles on our faces and greeting somebody and then not seeing them again for another week. It's about living life together. And that's how mature, that's how believers grow to maturity. It's fellowship. They come into fellowship. They get involved immediately. They get on mission immediately. And then there's a time of preparation for them. And then there's discipleship. Somebody that's going to say, I'm going to help prepare you for what God is asking you to do. This is how believers grow. Today we're celebrating, as Pastor Kyle said, it's basically Palm Weekend. right? When Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem. Now listen very carefully because I want to prepare you for the Lord's Supper. I hope you have the elements ready at home and I hope you have them ready here. It's going to be a little bit, so let me kind of walk you through something. See, what Jesus did on Palm Sunday, and by the way, you're going to see the tie-in to Acts chapter 9 in a minute. What Jesus did on Palm Sunday was begin his Passion Week. Now you may not know what that means, Passion Week. That word passion means suffering. He begins his week of suffering and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
And I want to fast forward you. There's a whole lot I could say, and I have said in previous sermons about what happened during that week. But I want to take you to Thursday evening, just hours before he was crucified. He is spending his last few hours with his disciples. They're celebrating the Passover. They sing Psalm 8, 118. Um, and they, they, after they sing that hymn, they leave the upper room, which is in the city of Jerusalem. They come out. They walk through the city. They come near to the temple. And then they go out the gate, one of the gates on the eastern side of the wall of Jerusalem. They go down the Kidron Brook. They cross that stream on a bridge. And they go up to the Mount of Olives and over to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's frequently where Jesus would go. It's where he would be with his father. You remember the story. He left his disciples. They went into the garden. He left his disciples, took three of them, Peter, James, and John, a little bit further in. And then he left them and went about a stone's throw into the interior of that garden. And the text says he fell on his face. He knew what was coming. He did not really fear the nails. He feared his first taste of your sin and my sin. Because that's about to be laid on him. He's never sinned. And even as a response to sin, he's never been separated from his father. And he knew what was coming in just a few hours. Three times he fell on his face. He was so much in anguish. This is an actual medical condition called hematridosis. His capillaries burst close to the surface of his skin. And that blood squeezed out his sweat pores and his forehead and in his arms. Wherever their superficial capillaries are close to the skin, that's where they burst and that's where he bled. Great drops of sweat mixed with blood. In fact, he was so much in anguish, an angel had to come. And strengthen him. Can you imagine that? Then the mob came sometime after midnight. They took him. All the disciples scattered with two of them following at a distance, John and Peter. They took him to first Annas, the high priest before who was the father-in-law of the current high priest, Caiaphas. The real power person was Annas where he was an inquisitor, and he asked him questions, and then he took him to Caiaphas, and nobody could get him to answer what he wanted, so they trumped up the charges. They began to beat him. They began to slap him, and then they put him into a dungeon that they found archaeologically in what they believe was Caiaphas's home. It's a hole in the floor. And at daybreak, they took him out, and they took him to Pilate, the Roman governor, And a mob of people all over Jerusalem that was just hailing him and waving palm fronds, recognizing him as the Savior, as the Messiah, now turned against him and began to yell, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate thought that maybe if he has him flogged severely, that would be enough to satiate the bloodlust of the people. So he takes Jesus and he releases him to the Roman guard and they tie his wrists to an upward, upward spike in the ground. It was a post. And so that his muscles on his back were tight. They stripped him first and then they took two soldiers, one on either side, each holding a flagellum, which is a short whip with leather ends, leather tails. 
tails tied into it with glass and metal and stone. And they began to whip him and they would curl it. They knew what they were doing. They would curl it around his rib cage and then pull it across his back, just riveting his back, flaying it open to the muscles underneath. It often killed a victim, flogging. 39 of those lashes. Then they put a purple robe of mock royalty on him and a crown of thorns, and they put a reed staff in uh, in his hands, but not until after beating him with that staff. And then they brought his bloodied visage, his face of agony and cruel physical pain in front of the Jews, and all it did was make them cry even louder, crucify him. Pilate lets him go to be crucified. They took a 75-pound patibulum, that's the cross beam, and tied it onto his shoulders, which were already ripped open from the scourging, and made him walk. That was the law. you got to walk your own execution device to the place where you're going to be killed. And he collapsed on the way, and they took a Simon of Cyrene to pick up the cross and take it the rest of the way. And when he got there, they threw him down after tying and fastening that pedibulum to the stipes, the upward beam, the cross. They tied it together, fastened it together, threw him down on his back, and then they stretched out his arm, and they drove a nail through his wrist. The bones in the palm cannot support a man's weight. And then they did the other wrist as well crushing the nerves. His hands, even if he did survive, would be in a permanent claw-like grasp. He would never open those fingers again. Then they took one foot over the other, and right through the socket of his ankle, they pounded that third spike. about seven to nine inches long, tapered way more than our railroad spikes to a really extremely fine edge, and they pounded his ankles into the cross. And then they took ropes, and they lifted that cross until the base of it slid down into a thud into the rock hole. You see, the Persians invented crucifixion. The Romans perfected it. But all the while, all the while, the scriptures are crying out. They're crying out that God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I'm going to go a little bit more, but let me tell you why I'm telling you all this. Do you remember that gap in Acts 9, verses 21 and 22, three years of preparation? You know what happened to Paul? He was taught by Jesus personally. He was caught up, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, to the third heaven. And Jesus taught him personally. And he says in, second, in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. In other words, Jesus taught me personally what I'm teaching you about the Lord's Supper. And Paul goes on, he says this, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, and look at the red letters, this is Jesus, this is my body, which is for you. And I want you to see the word I underlined. Do this in remembrance of me. Now everybody look at me if you would for a moment. This is so important. That word remembrance does not mean to recall information to mind. That's not what that Greek word means. It means to relive the full experience as if you were there. 
again. This is why I'm telling you the last hours of Jesus. It's 9 o'clock on Friday morning when that cross was put into that hole. It would be six hours. Usually prisoners that are being crucified would linger for days. It was a horrific, slow death. The worst way you could die possible. Jesus died in six hours. Undoubtedly hastened in his death by the exhaustion, the beating, the hunger, the dehydration. But it's at noon when all of a sudden it went dark all over Jerusalem, the Bible says. And in that darkness, Jesus cries out in a piercing cry, the only cry of pain on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's at that moment, friends, you need to know. Christian, you need to know. It's at that moment at noon when God began to pour your sins and my sins onto the head of his son, into the soul of Jesus, so that he would become sin for me and you, so that we could become the righteousness of God. Let that gravity strike your soul. He knew what was coming. He knew what laid ahead of him. And with that sin, now the sin bearer, now he is sin, now the Father who is holy cannot be in fellowship with him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's never, ever in eternity experienced the fellowship being broken with his Father. Never. You know the rest of the story. It's probably about quarter till three when he cries out to tell us die, meaning it is finished. I've done everything I need to do to bring salvation to anyone who would believe. And then he says, I am thirsty. And then he says, into your spirit, I submit. Into your hands, I submit my spirit. And he died. You know how he died? It's very easy to know medically how he died. They took one of those long 10-foot spears that are tapered to about a 24-inch point, and they thrust it through his rib cage, through his lungs first, and through his heart, and then pulled it out. That's how they would test to see if the crucified victim died, because what would come out is a mixture of blood and fluid. His lungs filled up. He couldn't breathe anymore. And this, friends, is the worst part, actually, of being crucified. You can breathe in, but you can't breathe out. The only way you can exhale is to relax your diaphragm muscles. And the only way you can do that is by pulling up or pushing up which would send fiery agony through the nail-pierced wrists and feet every single time. A crucified victim did nothing but gasp the entire time. He drowned in his own fluid, his heart ruptured. Why? Why? The answer is because he loves you, and he loves me. And it's the only way you could be saved. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's that simple. So Isaiah said in prophecy, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, I want you to take your cup, if you would, and if you're at home, can you take your bread? 
And there is a very top layer on these cups. If you could just peel that top layer back, there's a wafer underneath. And friends, that wafer is a memorial. We don't believe that it turns into the body of Jesus, and we don't believe that the Spirit of God inhabits it. We believe this is a memorial, and there is, when you take it by faith, something powerful that happens. You will again remember how deep the Father's love is for you, just how amazing his grace is. Why would you want to live for the world when you've got a God that loves you that much? Do you see the power of the Lord's Supper? It's a slowly get the grip of the world a little bit more every time you take it off of your heart and give you victory, to give you hope, to remember that your story is not yet done being written. The very God who died for you is a God that's written your story, and there's much more to come. So let's take that wafer, and I want you to hold it up by faith. If you're not a believer, you really shouldn't be doing this. But by faith, you're going to remember him, relive as if you were there, the full extent of it. Jesus loves you that much. By faith, I will live for you. Let's eat. And then let's peel the the cover of the lid, the lid rather, off of the juice. And again, this is a memorial. This is a marker that points you to the blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But I want to tell you one more thing about this. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ and he gave you life, Do you know he blotted out every charge against you? They didn't write with ink that had acid. It could not etch into the parchment. All they had to do was take a spongy, a wet sponge, and they could wipe it out, and the parchment was ready to be written again. He said, I will blot out every sin from your account. You are now as righteous as Jesus. And every time that we sin, which we will do tonight or tomorrow, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because he already shed his blood for you and for me. There's no stain on your soul. And if you're living in shame, that's the devil who is the accuser of the brethren. That is not your redemption. This is your redemption. Let's drink.